Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast where in this episode, we are looking at Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. This is the second ever Indiana Jones film, and actually served as a prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark. In terms of the format for the episode, I shall start with a little background information on the film, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film. Right, you are a preeminent archaeologist known worldwide for your adventurous exploits. You have just narrowly escaped with your life after facing a dangerous criminal in Shanghai and are now in a plane flying through the sky. However, little do you know that the pilots are actually under that very criminal's employ. They jump out of the plane, leaving you to plummet to your death. This is not the end for you. Little do you realise that a new adventure is about to begin in India, which shall take you to the Temple of Doom. In this section of the episode, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the background information on the film. I'm not going to go over everything because we'd basically be here all day, but I'll just cover some interesting little facts and stories, that kind of thing. To begin with, the club at the beginning of this film, when they're in Shanghai, is actually called Club Obi-Wan. It's called this because the writer of the film, once again, was George Lucas, who famously also wrote Star Wars. Personally, I like little easter eggs like this. I don't know many people who don't because they're pretty harmless and ultimately just a lot of fun. When it came to the actual filming, the locations used were Sri Lanka, China, the United States and England. 
Unfortunately, they tried to get permission to film in India also. However, they were turned down as the Indian government did not like many aspects of the film. This included the use of profanity, the misrepresentation of the Maharaja, and there was also a feeling that the Indian people were being depicted as quite primitive and Philistine-esque. In fact, even after the film was released, it was banned in India. In the film, when our heroes crash in the plane and end up in, well, what's supposed to be India anyway, they come across a village where an old man talks to them in English. What's really interesting about this old man is he wasn't actually an actor. He was genuinely a local and he didn't know English. In fact, in the film, you see him making quite over-exaggerated hand movements where he covers his eyes with his hands and things like that. This was his way of remembering the script. And personally, considering he wasn't actually an actor, I think he did a very good job. When it came to the actress who played Willie in the film, Kate Capshaw, she and the director, Steven Spielberg, actually started dating during the filming. And in fact, seven years later, they would get married. The final point I'd like to talk about here is the fact that this film led to the invention of a new age rating. As the film was clearly too violent to be a PG, but not violent enough to be a 15, Spielberg suggested that they alter the age ratings, and so PG-13 was invented in America. In all honesty, although I have very fond memories of sitting down as a child about two inches away from the TV in my grandmother's house, enthralled by this film, I do understand this logic as the film is incredibly violent in places. In terms of the cast, as I'm sure will be a surprise to absolutely no one, Harrison Ford plays Indiana Jones, Kate Capshaw plays Willie, Kehui Kwan plays Short Round, and Amarish Purely plays the villainous Mularam, an actor who, in the very same year as the Temple of Doom, took 15 other roles. On top of that, he was in at least 157 films and had over 400 roles in total during his career. Right, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. And much like I did with The Mummy 3, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, I'm just going to put out a little disclaimer first. I'm an Egyptologist. This film is set in India and involves Indian history. I am not an expert of that, but I will do my best and I will, I have really tried to make this as accurate as possible, but please bear that in mind while you're listening to this episode. With that out of the way, let us begin. At the beginning of the film, Indiana Jones is in a deal with some, well, essentially Chinese gangsters in Shanghai. And the gangsters say that Nohachi is the first emperor of the Monchu dynasty. This is pretty much accurate. So near the beginning of, I suppose, his career, he defeated a rival named Nikan Weilan. I really, really apologise if I'm butchering the pronunciation of that, by the way. But he basically beat this guy to become the leader of his tribe. And then he went on to subdue the other four tribes in the northeast area of China. And also took over many important cities, including Shenyang and Laoyang. In AD 1616, 
He then proclaimed himself the Khan of the later Jin dynasty, marking the beginning of the Manchu rule of China. So this statement by these Chinese gangsters is pretty much correct. Although, with this scene, I do question one thing. So Indiana Jones is supposed to be an archaeologist. That's been well established over the years. So why on earth is he trying to sell the remains of Nahachi to Chinese gangsters in exchange for a rare diamond? That's not the act of an archaeologist. That's literally the act of a tomb robber. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Indiana Jones. It's my favourite series of all time. But I do wonder how many people out there genuinely think that archaeologists are going out, looting tombs and then selling the items. That's not archaeology. That's highly unethical tomb robbery. Right, anyway, with that out of the way, let's move on. Later in the film, we find out about some sacred stones, which the film called Shankara Stones. In the film, he talks about the Hindu prophet Shankara, climbing Mount Khaleesi and meeting Shiva. Shiva then gives Shankara five sacred stones, which he uses to fight evil. This is made up for the film, but the Shankara stones are vaguely based on Shivalingam stones, which are incredibly important in Hinduism and very important to the god Shiva. I will say here that I am going to try and do my best to explain what Shivalingam stones are and what their purpose is. However, if there are any Hindus listening and I do get something wrong, please do feel free to get in contact with me and correct me. The email address for this podcast is in the description below. So, Shivalingam stones represent the masculine energy of Shiva, and they are believed to embody his consciousness, power and creative force. There is actually a Shivalingam stone in all temples devoted to Shiva, and they are also present in many shrines and households as well. The worship of the Shivalingam is believed to promote health, wellness and spiritual growth. Typically, it is bathed in water and offered prayers and flowers such as tegas, taparajitas, axe and datoras, as these types are seen as dear to Shiva, as well as these other offerings are also given. It is also believed that Shivalingam has the power to purify the surrounding area, promoting positive energies and removing negative ones. So, it is fair to say that the Shankara stones in the Temple of Doom, although they are based on Shivalingam stones, they don't hold that many similarities, other than the fact that they're both devoted to Shiva. The main antagonists in this film are the Thuggy Cult. What's really interesting is that the Thuggy Cult were actually real, and they did terrorise large parts of India between the 14th and 19th centuries. It is fair to say, however, that studying the Thuggy cult can be quite tricky, because although sources are quite plentiful, many of them are colonial in nature. And in fact, for this reason, there are actually some professionals who question whether the Thuggy cult actually existed at all, or whether they were purely just a colonial invention, as a source of kind of propaganda. I personally do not buy into this idea. I think the Thuggy cult did exist, largely because you also get plenty of Indian and South Asian sources. But it is undeniable that these colonial sources have skewered the perception of the cult somewhat. So, for this section, I am going to be looking at both colonial and Indian and South Asian sources, 
and I'm mainly going to be talking about the things that appear in all of these sources, so the common denominators. Basically, the Thuggy cult were a secret society that appeared across India. They were professional robbers and murderers that existed from the 14th to the 19th century when they were wiped out by the colonial British. It seems likely that in origin they were from marginalised groups and many of them seem to have been part of the military labour force in India who robbed and killed when they were not in employment. Normally they would target other travellers, often by striking up a conversation with them whilst another of their members snuck up behind them and strangled them with a piece of cloth known as a rumal. Although this was almost certainly done in part to make ends meet, there did also seem to be an association with the goddess Kali. We have that from both colonial and Indian and South Asian sources. Basically, they seem to believe that their violent acts would please her. This is purely a thuggy belief. It wasn't something that was believed by other Hindus. And it is also worth noting that colonial sources tend to play up this last part and make it into something it's not. It is worth noting that there were also Muslims in the Thuggy cult, and so it is unlikely that having to worship Kali in this weird, deformed way was actually a necessity for the cult. There were other things involved. And it is also worth noting that amongst their members, if one of them refused to, say, murder someone on religious grounds, then that wasn't necessarily held against them. Often, that person would just be left alive, or another member of the cult would kill them instead. Basically put, although Kali is often associated with the thuggy cult, and a lot of their members did worship her, that wasn't the be-all and end-all of the cult. It is also worth noting that the thuggy cult did not commit human sacrifice, as shown in the film. However, they did seem to mutilate bodies, as a way of evading detection, though from what I've seen, this point does seem to be exclusive to colonial sources, so take that with a pinch of salt, I guess. In the film, we see quite a few of the kind of possessed people who have had to join the thuggy cult, eating around a table, and they're eating things like snakes and spiders and monkey brains, that kind of thing. This is pure nonsense, and it's actually one of the reasons the film got banned in India. One of the most controversial scenes in the entire film, as it basically takes Indian culture, deforms it, and then makes it into a joke. Basically put, considering that Hindus tend to be vegetarian, you kind of get why they might have been offended by this. Basically put, although there are some vague inspirations in this film that come from historical and religious sources, mostly from India, it is highly inaccurate and almost seems to go out of its way to be so. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section of the episode. And by this point, I feel most of my regular listeners are going to know the deal. I'm going to talk about what I like in the film, what I dislike, and then rate the film out of 10. I'm going to switch things up a little bit in this one, and I'm actually going to talk about the bad points first. So... To begin with, I do actually feel that Willie is quite a badly written character, who really isn't very nice, and I don't feel she grows that much throughout the film either. This isn't to say that I don't like any of the scenes she's in. I do find it quite funny when she's running around the jungle screaming as, well, owls and things jump out at her. 
a lot of animals that don't seem like they should be in the jungle, to be honest. And I will admit the dance sequence at the beginning of the film where Willie is singing is a a spectacular scene. I, I think it's really awesome. But overall, she's basically quite a selfish character who seems to care. Well, like at the beginning, for instance, where she cares more about the diamond than the fact that someone's just been poisoned and might die. In general, they just make her a little bit too stupid as well. And it does make me question why Indiana Jones would be interested in her. I get that like, she's supposed to be very attractive, but there's more to attraction than just the physical. And I think it ultimately makes Indiana Jones seem quite shallow as well. I will also say that it is kind of undeniable that this film has aged very poorly. I don't think it's to the stage where I'm uncomfortable watching it. I still think it's an awesome film, but it is undeniable that there are some elements that make me cringe a little bit. So, for instance, like I mentioned earlier, the part where they're sitting around a table eating the snakes and stuff... This is an iconic scene, but I get why people would be offended by it. What's kind of annoying, though, is I feel like there are small things that could have been done to make it a little bit less dated. So, for instance, in the original script, Indiana Jones was actually supposed to comment on the fact that they're eating these weird dishes, these these very unvegetarian dishes, because he does say that this doesn't seem very Hindu. And it's supposed to be like the first hints of the thuggy cult taking over. I do think that may have made things a little bit better. I don't know whether it would have like made it perfect, but it would have made it better. And also one of the complaints in the film was that Kali isn't represented in the proper way. She's represented as quite a bloodthirsty goddess. Again, if they just specified that this was the thuggy version of Kali and it was supposed to be a deformed version of her worship, I think there would have been a few people who would have had less of an issue with this. Because ultimately, that is what's supposed to be going on here. This may be me being very naive, maybe I'm missing the point, there's a very good chance of that, but that's the way it does seem to me. But unfortunately, that's not what the film did, so this still does count as a bit of a negative. Right. Now let's move on to some of the good parts of this film. First of all, I feel a lot of people when they talk about the greatest scenes in Indiana Jones, they very often mention the beginning of the Raiders of the Lost Ark where you have the boulder rolling down and chasing him. I would actually rate the opening of this film as better. I think it's got an awesome opening with an amazing dance sequence. You then have an amazing action sequence where he's trying to get the antidote to being poisoned. And then an amazing car chase, all interwoven with a bit of comedy and the introduction of the main characters. And speaking of the main characters, although I know a few people who seem to have a bit of an issue with Short Round, for myself, I really like him. I think he's a really good character. I think he's incredibly likeable. And I do think he is one of the better Indiana Jones companions. I actually really like the main villain in this film, Mularan. He's very over the top, very different to any of the other villains in the series, and I do think Emrish Purely did a really good job of portraying him. I will also say, this part I feel there's going to be a lot of people that disagree with me on, but the part where Indiana Jones, Willie and Short Round jump out of the plane in the, well, essentially an inflatable dinghy, for thousands of feet land and then start like scooting down the side of a mountain 
I quite like that scene. I know it's ridiculous. I know it's stupid. I know it's it so clearly would not work, but I think it's quite an iconic scene that's sort of a bit harmless. And I like it for that. I think it's it's entertaining. I feel sometimes you just have to switch your brain off and think, does this scene make me smile or not? And that one definitely does. So I do rate it as a plus. Finally, although this film does have its extreme ups and downs, I do think it has arguably the best scene in any Indiana Jones film. And that's the minecart chase scene towards the end of the film. I just think the whole scene is, well, first of all, it's sprinkled with little bits of humour, which are really appreciated. But it's also just so action-packed and you barely get time to breathe in a really good way. I will admit that my feelings here are very nostalgia-based. As I was saying earlier in the, in the episode, I have very fond memories of sitting about two inches away from my grandmother's TV, watching this film completely enthralled. This is the scene I remember most from that time. And I will also say it's the scene that I don't feel that Disney are profiting on enough because... How on earth have they not made a roller coaster based on this scene? It's such a no-brainer and it would be awesome. In terms of the reviews, although they are very good, it is still the weakest of the first three Indiana Jones films. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a critic score of 76% and an audience score of 82%, with the consensus being that it may be a little bit too dark, but it is still an ingenious adventure that showcases some of Hollywood's finest filmmaking. And on IMDb, it is a 7.5 out of 10. Here, there are a few different mixed opinions. Some people see it as a film that they have incredibly fond memories of, and one of the greatest sequels of all time whilst others felt that the film didn't quite capture the same magic as the Raiders of the Lost Ark. For myself, this is a bit of a weird one, because although it is probably my favourite Indiana Jones film, I would also rate it as 9 out of 10. As I've said, there are more problems with this film when it comes to the original three Indiana Jones films, but it is also the one that I probably have the fondest memories of. I will always love this film, and I will always look upon it fondly but I do understand why some people are a little less thrilled by it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I really hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment, and join me on Monday, where we shall be looking at the first episode of the Disney Plus series, Moon Knight. And then join me again on Thursday, where we shall be looking at Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your week, and see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.